You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 2. We'll be starting at verse 13 and be reading till the end of the chapter. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the regions who were two years old or under, according to the time that had, uh, that had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea to the Uh, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and uh, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we got Redemption Kids for ages two to four. And before I dismiss those kiddos, we have uh, what we confess. And uh, something you can expect in the new year is incorporating more and more of our confession of faith, uh, not only in our Sunday celebration, but throughout the life of the church. And uh, it seems appropriate that we ask this question today. And so I'll read the question and then with me, if you're comfortable, um, respond. When and how did the Son of God come into the world? When the fullness of time had come took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. When the Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the Lord the Most High shadowed her. So he was born of a woman, a tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham, according to the scriptures. Uh, thank you. You may be seated. If it serves you, parents, like I said, we have uh, redemption kids, ages two to four. Thank you, Jen and Leah, for serving this morning. Well, it's 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 good to see you all. Um, thanks for being here as we celebrate the Word become flesh. And uh, please be in prayer for many of our brothers and sisters who are currently sick right now. Um, 
I think the Adel school district I heard had 20 to 30% of kids out this last week. So clearly things are going around. So be praying for them, but it's, it's, it's good to see you all this morning. You know, one of the emphases has been the awe and wonder of Christmas, the awe and wonder of Advent and all the events surrounding the birth of Christ. And so a couple weeks ago, we began to look at the Gospel of Luke. And what I tried to do in that particular sermon is to show you how we should be in awe and wonder of the miraculous. Like as Christians, we need to receive that that is a reality of our life and our faith. And so when the Holy Spirit overpowered Mary and she conceived a son, we should be like, that's not supposed to happen. And that is the point. (laughs) And that's amazing. And we should be in awe and wonder. Uh, Last week, we then went to Mary's song, right? The Magnificat, a beautiful song meant to be sung. I truly mean that through and through. And Mary is singing about who God is. This great God, who, the one who overpowered the Virgin Mary, this great God. We should be in awe of who he is. And we looked at some of those attributes, right? And then this morning, we're going to move from Luke to Matthew because I want you to see how you should be in awe and wonder about what Scripture says about the birth of Christ. What has already been spoken long ago, what this book says about the birth of Christ. And the reason why I I jumped to Matthew is because of the extra content, frankly, of the birth account of Christ, right? You go to the Gospel of Luke, it gives you like six or seven verses, but Matthew really digs into the details of what, what took place and why. Why? But next week, I will jump back, in, back into Luke, so in case you're wondering where we're, where we're headed. So this morning, I might stretch some of you. I'm, I'm hoping to, actually. I might stretch some of you in, in about how you read the Bible. So if I want you to be in awe and wonder about what this book says about the birth of Christ, that means we're going to be talking a lot about this book and what it contains and what it says about the birth of Christ. And my goal is to stretch a little bit of your Bible reading or your general understanding of Scripture. There are times when going through the Bible, and you go through a particular book of the Bible, it's pretty straightforward, right? Matthew, and to a lesser degree, Luke, are constantly making connections between past stories and their present reality. That's as much different than going through like a Pauline epistle. You ever read the book of Romans? It's like reading a legal briefing. And so if your mind thinks that way, you, you, get all, you, you have a great time reading Romans, right? But if you're like me, and you like stories, and how things are connected, and you like narratives, and the Gospels are... Gospels are your jam. The Gospels are like a canvas. You have to see the entire canvas to make sense of any specific part. There are various colors, but when you look at all the colors and when they're put together, it all makes sense. But individually, you're kind of like, I'm not quite sure what we're looking at here. So this is what we're doing this morning. This is what I want you to, want you to see. In the mind of Matthew, the Gospel writer, There's no way you can understand the birth of Christ apart from seeing how it was revealed in the Old Testament. Like, it is not possible to understand the birth of Christ unless you're reading more Scripture. 
And so what Logan read for you this morning, what we're going to be diving into right now, is how Matthew, he goes to the book of Exodus to show you Christ. He goes to the book of Jeremiah to show you Christ. He goes to the book of Micah to show you Christ. He goes to the book of Hosea to show you Christ. So you have to sometimes step back, right, to see the entire picture. And I pray, um, and a prayer I have for you this morning, is that your trust in God will grow as you see how Christ is revealed and how it all fits together, right? I hope your trust will increase as you see how what was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ find its fulfillment in Christ. I mean, just imagine, like, you just pause here for a moment. Like, let's say I wrote a book right now, and I make a bunch of proclamations. Like, what are the likelihood that they come true? Maybe I hit one out of a hundred. That'd be cool. At least could claim that. One out of a thousand. No. What we have here, hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, we see promises being made that are fulfilled in Christ. And my hope is that you would be in awe and wonder of how God has woven that together. So the goal is simple this morning. I want you to be in awe and wonder about how a bunch of different Old Testament authors who did not know each other, they weren't emailing each other being like, hey, what are you writing this week? You know, no text messages being sent. Many of them didn't even live during the same time, but they were all talking about Christ. The birth of a child born in Bethlehem. All right, he had to flee to Egypt, and he eventually settled in this obscure town named Nazareth. All these locations, again, that are in the Old Testament, that are finding its fulfillment in Christ, all these locations have historic and theological meaning, and that's what I want to show you this morning how all these are connected to Christ. During this Advent season, as you pray before your Christmas meal, as you gather around your Christmas tree, or when you watch your favorite Christmas movie, may you be led to reflect on why this season is so unique and celebrated. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the details of this magnificent passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning just to point these precious folks to you as we look at your word. So, Almighty God, help me to be faithful as a preacher of your word. Indeed, that is my greatest request this morning. And for those sitting in front of me, Lord, may they receive what you have spoken. And yes, may they be in awe on how, on how you have woven history together that points to Christ. Help us to see that this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible, this, this book here, um, has an internal logic that points us to Christ. The internal logic of the Bible includes covenants made by God with man. It includes prophecies that speak about a future Messiah, a future Savior, and it shares with us promises made by God about the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. The internal logic of the Bible also uses locations 
as signs that point us to Jesus. Before looking at a few, uh, a few Old Testament passages, let's take a look at history. As we look at promises in history, we see how reliable and faithful God is to fulfill his promises. Perhaps it goes without saying, we, we live in a generation where promises have become relatively meaningless, right? A promise is made to another person has become very malleable. <laughs> a promise is made, but the promise maker shifts the commitment because circumstances change, social pressure, or just maybe a different internal desire. Uh, for example, here are several promises made uh, by two different U.S. presidents the promises were not kept. And if these are one of your favorite presidents, I apologize, but here we go. George W. Bush, right, promised to, quote, change the tone in D.C. Uh, by privatizing Social Security and reduce government spending, none of which he succeeded with. None. That was according, according to Axios.com. Now, perhaps politics got in the way. Certainly politics got in the way. Or Bush changed his mind. I don't know. All he knows is he made a promise and he didn't fulfill it. Now, for all of you uh, right-leaning folks or left-leaning folks, here you go, Barack Obama. Uh, PolitiFact tracked 533 of Obama's promises and found that 48% of them he managed to keep, while 24% he broke. So Obama kept half of his promises, while 24 were certainly broken. I, now, I don't know if these stats are consistent with other presidents, but what I do know that if I broke a quarter of my promises with Sharice, I would be in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> I mean, that's, a quarter's a lot. <laughs> like, we're seeing patterns here. Now, the point is not who you voted for or what you think about these presidents. Uh, the truth is, I could have started with George Washington and made my way all the way to Joe Biden, right? I could have and shown you how promises were made and promises were not kept or broken for various reasons. Consider all the broken promises you've experienced throughout your life. A friend says they'll show up only to back out the last second. Right? Marriage vows, promises are made and broken years later. Like, it, I've seen this before. You ever have someone who promises to show up at your door on moving day? And then on moving day, they're like, ah, I'm sick. Because <laughs> like, who, want, who wants to move, right? Your back's just a mess afterwards. What's my point? I'm, I'm not trying to cause you to distrust politicians. They, they can do that on their own, right? They don't need my help. They're good. I do not want you to distrust the people around you. I'm not, I'm not trying to cause you to do that. I am attempting to create a distinction so that you might see the greatness and goodness and faithfulness of God. I mentioned the nature of promise making and promise breaking to show you that we serve a God who always keeps his promises. We put more faith in our politicians who break their promises, Republican or Democrat, I don't care, then we put our faith in God, who does not, who is 100% keeping his promises. Like he's batting a thousand. And we just want a politician who can, you know, maybe bat 
500. Today, we read of three different promises made in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in the birth and early life of Jesus. And I hope you are in awe and wonder of God who has woven history together to give us our Savior. In chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Matthew, five promises are fulfilled from the Old Testament. Some of the promises are straightforward and a few are a little sneaky. With the sneaky promises, we don't see a connection until the other connecting point is revealed. So you got the promise made in the Old Testament, and we finally understand what that promise is, how that promise is being fulfilled in the New Testament. One of the promises was from Isaiah, that's Matthew 1.23, and another one was Micah, that's Matthew 2.6, which we won't go over. They've, that's already happened before we get to our passage. In the second half of chapter 2, Matthew, the author, shows us the depth of his reading of the Old Testament. Like, he knows his Bible really, really, really well. He is going to continue to quote from the prophet Hosea and Jeremiah. So right out of the gate, here's what I want you to learn from Matthew. He believes the Old Testament through and through is about Jesus Christ. Like, you got to let that settle in your heart, especially some of you grew up in a, say, I don't know, dispensationalist home. Right? You're not, you don't get that message. But I'm here to tell you, no, this is a, the Old Testament is about Jesus. As Spurgeon said, just as every road leads to London, every back alley leads to London, so every scripture leads to Jesus Christ. Every scripture leads to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is about God's path of redemption for his people through Jesus. The, the three fulfilled promises in today's passage continue to build out and confirm the providential work of God to save his people. So we can trace the three promises with the travel going on in the story. That's what's really handy about this particular narrative. You just kind of follow where they're going and you begin to see how these promises are fulfilled. Like if you're a note taker, you can use this as kind of an outline. In verses 13 to 15, we have Joseph, Mary, and Jesus going to Egypt. And for a while, they live in Egypt, verses 16 to 18. And then, verses 19 to 23, they come out of Egypt. All for very specific reasons. All pointing to Jesus and all fulfilling promises or prophetic words made in the Old Testament. In each scene, we see Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, providing and protecting his family. That's what's unique about this passage, very interesting about this passage. Joseph is the guy. He's, in a sense, kind of the main character. And he's providing and protecting his family. With God's sovereign hand all over history, we see once again that God uses the least likely of people and the least likely of places to accomplish his purposes. Now, let's look at how the first promise of this passage found its fulfillment in Christ. In Matthew 1, we see the angel, perhaps Gabriel, that's what we get in Luke, appear to Joseph in a dream. The angel provides Joseph with specific instructions. Here's what the angel said. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Right? Like there's a reason why the angel says you got to go. 
Because Herod's a mean, wicked dude. And he feels threatened by this promised king. You might know from Matthew 1 that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are in Bethlehem, right? When the angel speaks to Joseph. But the tyrannical king Herod is threatened by Jesus, wants to kill him. So the idea for Joseph is to move his family outside the jurisdiction of Herod. Go to a place where Herod's authority will not reach. Once again, Joseph obeys the angel of the Lord. If we, if we put this in context for a moment, like Joseph is walking in faith just as much as Mary is. Like if you're worried about Mary being ostracized by the community because she's a virgin and she's pregnant, how do you think Joseph feels? Yeah, I'm going to marry her. And she's pregnant? Yeah, not my child, though. Like, talk about an awkward conversation at the coffee shop with your friend. Now the angel appears to Joseph, and he's like, whoa, what's going on here? I mean, as we continue to look at this story, I think it is good to, to step back and see that Joseph is being obedient. His obedience to the Lord were acts of provision and protection for his family. I mean, we can't minimize the fact that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And from a temporal point of view, it is Joseph's obedience that keeps Jesus alive. Now, God's plan will not be thwarted. But if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking to myself, how do I keep my son alive? I'm going to obey the angel. So we're called to provide and protect our family, husbands, fathers, through devotion and obedience to God. Okay, the question on the table at this point in the narrative is why go to Egypt? Why not go north? Why not go east? You can't go west. You got the Mediterranean. Why go south? The reason for moving to Egypt is profoundly historical and theological. What Matthew is indicating is actually massive. Read with me verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Out of Egypt I have called my son. If you want to understand the depth of Jesus moving to Egypt, you need to know the connection Matthew is making with the prophet Hosea. We read in Hosea 11, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. That's Hosea 11.1. As Pastor David Platt notes, the flight to Egypt for Jesus and his family was about much more than simply running away from Herod. Like, if that's your takeaway, then you've actually missed the point of the story. You missed the point of what God is doing in history. If, if, you're, if your takeaway is they were running away. No, Platt, Platt rightly notes, this was, about, this was about painting a picture. What kind of picture? It actually ends up being a picture of God's mercy. Now, it was not unusual for God to call Israel his child in the singular in the Old Testament. This is because God had a singular love for, for his collection of people, his elect people. With the use of the singular child, we can quickly pivot to the New Testament and understand that a collection would, of people would be redeemed by one child, Jesus. But there's more to the story. Matthew is referencing Hosea. And Hosea is referencing one of the most monumental events in human history, the Exodus of Israel 
from Egypt. And I mentioned this last week as we looked at Luke 2. And I'm going to be honest, I was struck by this in a massive way as I've been going through this particular sermon series. And I had not caught this before in all my Bible reading. The birth narratives that we read about in Luke and Matthew dig back and go back to talk about how the birth of Christ is connected to the exodus and exile of God's people. We read it right here. Like, just please hang with me because the connection between Jesus and the Exodus is so significant. In Exodus 6, and I know I'm, I'm, in part I'm reminding you of what I said last week, but in Exodus 6, God promises to deliver Israel from slavery out of Egypt. We see this in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Now, here's the substance. Here's what God spoke to Moses to tell the people of Israel. I am the Lord, and I will bring you from under the burdens of the Egyptians and under the burdens of Pharaoh, right? And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Like ringing in my ears right now as I read Exodus, I'm thinking about Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. And what those passages tell us about Christ, his outstretched arm, the government will be upon his shoulders. I mean, let the imagery work to get a picture of what the Savior is all about. Verse 7, And I will take you to, to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians. Of course, part of the process of delivering Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians was like the ten plagues, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, and the crossing of the Red Sea. So what do the actions of God in Exodus, in this Exodus story, tell us about God? Well, he's merciful, but there is more. God delivers and God redeems. God put down the Egyptians and delivered Israel from slavery. God also took back or redeemed what belonged to him. God's like, that's my people. They are mine. The other takeaway from the Exodus story is that God was faithful to fulfill his promises. God said he would do something, and his sovereign plan will not be thwarted. It will not be thwarted. So, the, so, so that's Exodus, right? And now the prophet Hosea picks up on the theme of God's sovereign plan. Again, Hosea is reading his Bible. He knows the story. But here's the problem during the time of Hosea. Israel was constantly disobeying God. That's, it. That's, that's Hosea's context. They all kept walking away from the one who led them out of Egypt and, and out of slavery. Here's Hosea 11, verses 1 and 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Here are those words again. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called... The more they went away, God kept calling and calling and calling. And God's people kept rebelling, rebelling, rebelling. As if they thought they could thwart God's plan of redemption. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So what's the point Hosea is making? I'm trying to make a direct connection. Exodus, Hosea, Matthew. Hosea is like, Guys, remember what God has done for you. 
the salvation, the deliverance, the redemption. And now you've gone off to worship other gods. The entire chapter of Hosea 11 is about how God will redeem Israel even though Israel continues to rebel against God. Over and over, God provides, but over and over, Israel puts their thumb in the eye of God. Yet, the steadfast love of God is more consequential than their rebellion. And what do the people of God need more than anything? They need a king. They need a king. No, they don't need a purely human king to rule over their land and tell them what to do. They do not need another Saul. They do not need another David. They do not need another King Solomon. They need a king who will rule and reign over their heart. They need a king who will not just deliver them from physical slavery, but deliver them from the slavery caused by sin. They need the Son of God to provide a spiritual exodus that has physical ramifications. Therefore, the prophet Hosea was not only reflecting on Exodus 6, but he was looking forward to a more excellent and more lasting path of redemption. Hosea is sitting there. It's like, I know what God has done, and I know what he's going to do. There's another angle for us to see. Why did the angel call Joseph to go to Egypt? Egypt is symbolic that the redemption through faith in Jesus Christ is for the nations. Right? God is singling something here. A little-known bishop from the 5th century named uh, Chromanitis helps make the point. He says, After Egypt's ancient grave sin, after many blows had been divinely inflicted upon it, God, the omnipotent Father, moved by devotion, sent His Son into Egypt. He did so that Egypt, which had long ago paid back the penalty of wickedness under Moses, owed under Moses, might now receive Christ, the hope for salvation. How great was God's compassion as shown in the advent of His Son. So Egypt represents a place of immense pain. It is a, a place of immense pain in history, but also hope for the nations. Going to Egypt is symbolic, but it also fulfills a central prophetic theme in Scripture. God is all about the redemption of his people. Jesus represents a new exodus because he is the true Israel. Before looking at the second fulfilled promise, I want to ask a few direct questions about what we see between verses 13 and 15. If God was willing to redeem his people by showering down plagues and parting the Red Sea, the Exodus story, if God was unwilling to give up on his people, even though they, they constantly worshipped idols, Hosea, and if God was willing to send his one and only son into the world as the capstone of redemption, if God has done all of this, do you think it's worth pausing for a moment to thank God for his faithfulness throughout history? Right? Like if this is your history, Christian, 
it's worth pausing being like, just thank you, God. Thank God for his steadfast love. Even as we've given up on God, he has not given up on us because of his steadfast love. We see that all throughout history, and we see that today in our lives. Christian, you know that to be true. He does not give up on the ones he loves. And we can thank God for Christ who made the way for us to have a personal exodus from the punishment and power of sin. I think it is worth the time for you, Christian, to create space, especially Advent's busy. Talk to anyone today. Hey, how you doing? Busy. How you doing? Busy. How you doing? Busy. Right? All the things, Christmas parties, whatever. It is worth pausing in the midst of a busy schedule that is packed to step away and find space to thank God for all that he has done through Christ. If creating space means going for a walk to remember and thank God, do it. Go for that walk. It means you got to bundle up right now. If creating space means jumping, this is, way I, this is what I do. I jump into the car, I find a, a country road, and I drive slowly. Just create that space. If creating space means closing the door to avoid uh, the chaos that may exist in the house, right? Do it. Right. If creating space means pulling the blanket over your head, do it. Thank God for all that he has done. Whatever it looks like for you, Take time during the busyness of this season to create space to thank God, to be in awe and wonder of who God is and what he has done. And here's the crazy cool part of what we see in this phrase, out of Egypt, these three words, out of Egypt. You, Christian, have been woven into God's plan of redemption along with all those who were delivered from slavery in Egypt. That should put you in awe. Now, here's the second scene of the story. Joseph, and these last two scenes are shorter. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they they do move to Egypt, right? We do not know what they did in Egypt. We don't have a lot of details. Scripture is fairly silent. However, back in Bethlehem, Herod's fury is in full force. He murders all the male children under the age of two because he wants to kill Jesus. We know that Lady Justice did not have her way with Herod in those moments. However, according to the first church historian, Eusebius, Herod did die actually a horrific and gruesome death. Unfortunately, we see the impact Herod's actions had upon the community. Bethlehem, right, was a small town. In the shadow of Jerusalem, small town. One scholar suggests about 20 to 30 children would have been murdered. Regardless of the size of the town and the number of children murdered, the pain for parents would have been palpable, right? Been palpable. Holy Scripture makes this part of the story known, actually. Quoting Jeremiah 31, 15, we read in Matthew 2, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentations. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You read that, and you might ask the question, what does this have to do with anything? What is Matthew getting at here? I want to explain that to you. 
like Hosea, there is an original context for this passage. However, the context is not the exodus from Egypt, but the exile of Israel to Babylon. The exile is when the Israelites were taken from their land by the Babylonians. Again, they're worshiping other gods, and God's like, I'm not having it. You're going to Babylon. He allows the Babylonians to come in and take the Israelites. Again, we saw this in Luke 1. One of the features of the exile is that families were actually sometimes separated, right? Dad's got to stay back. Mom and the kids are going. So Jeremiah 31, which is quoted by Matthew, depicts the lament of mothers in Israel bewailing their sons as the Babylonians led them off. There would have been similar emotions for the mothers in Bethlehem, right? Son was just murdered. I'd be hysterical. What makes this reference even more curious and interesting is the reference to Rachel, right? Rachel is a kind of the mother of Israel. Rachel was the wife of Jacob. If you go back and read Genesis 29, Rachel is married to Jacob but can't have children. She is barren. The women around her are having children, but not Rachel. But one day, God gave Rachel a child, Joseph, and then a second child, Benjamin. But it was during the birth of Benjamin where Rachel died. But here's the deal. Here's one of the points Matthew is making when talking about Rachel in verse 18. Life comes from death. Israel would eventually return from exile and be given new life. From Rachel came a son who stands in the genealogy of Jesus. In all this pain, we see how tears and disappointment reveal God's ultimate purpose for good. It's also worth mentioning that the people of God have constantly been persecuted, right? Yes, there have been times when Israel is the cause of their own pain, certainly. But throughout history, God's people have been the recipients of unjust persecution. But what do we need to remember from this passage and from what happened in Bethlehem? God ultimately brings justice and hope through redemption by Jesus Christ. As Pastor Doriani points out, the first Christmas was the beginning of the end of evil on earth. For so many years, the world had so little of God's light. The coming of Christ was the dawning of a great light in a world filled with darkness. So, verses 16 to 18, they're, they're, they're not throwaway verses. Matthew's not picking obscure verses from the Old Testament and trying to make it work, you know, putting the round thing into the square hole, the round peg in the square hole. It's not what he's doing here. He's writing with purpose. First, Rachel was barren, but God did provide. He provided. Rachel died, but a mighty legacy lived through her son, Benjamin. Second, the Babylonians sent Israel into exile, but God made a way for them to get back. Finally, Herod slaughtered innocent children. But Herod's wicked actions will not thwart God's sovereign plan. The evil intentions of wicked men cannot and will not stop God. You know, the hope of Christmas is not what is lying underneath the Christmas tree. 
The hope of Christmas is not found in the person sitting next to you. The hope of Christmas is about God's faithfulness to redeem his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do not look within yourself for this hope, but may Christ be the object of your hope, right? He's the object of your hope. The vision Matthew is constructing is God's work of redemption in the past, in the present, and for your future. Receiving this Christian vision, it really does require having the long view regarding life and death. Got to have the long game in view here. Now on to the final scene of our story. The third way the birth of Jesus fulfills a promise is in verses 19 to 23. We read in verse 19 that Herod did die, right? He died, horrific death, which is a signal for Joseph to take his family back to Israel, right? Do you think all is good? Before email, text messaging, and phone calls, Joseph would have no idea that Herod died. So how does he find out? For the fourth time in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. Joseph was not entirely settled on the new ruler, the new ruler of Israel, Joseph knew something about the new ruler that we do not know because he was afraid of him as well. Then Joseph has another dream, no shocker. And then Joseph leaves Egypt and goes back to a backwater town called Nazareth. We know from Micah 5.2 that the town of Bethlehem is significant. We know from Hosea 11.1 that coming out of Egypt is really important. It's noteworthy. Both locations, along with a star, Help us identify Jesus as the Son of God. But what about Nazareth? Let's read verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, ah, I see a pattern. I see a pattern. Every time a town or land is mentioned in the New Testament, we, we've got a verse in the Old Testament, Right? Your observation would be justified, by the way. However, we have a problem. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Yet we read it in verse 23, right? Jesus living in Nazareth fulfilled the words spoken by the prophets, plural. So what's going on here? There are several hypotheses, but I will tell you the most likely option. To know what Matthew is getting at, we have to know the reputation of Nazareth in the first century we are given an indication of the reputation of Nazareth in the Gospel of John. At the end of chapter 1 in the Gospel of John, Jesus is gathering two of his 12 disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. And when Nathaniel is urged to follow Jesus and go to Nazareth, and he says this, can anything, anything good come out of Nazareth? The reputation of Nazareth was not good amongst outsiders. You don't want to live in Nazareth. You don't vacation in Nazareth. You don't send your kids to the University of Nazareth. For many years, uh, Sharice and I would drive between the Twin Cities and Dubuque, Iowa. And we'd take Highway 52 because it hugged the Mississippi. It's a two-lane road, beautiful drive, beautiful drive. But I can't tell you how many times... (laughs) We've made this comment to one another as we've driven through some of the smaller towns. Who lives here? <laughs> How are they employed? 
it's, it's akin to saying, what good comes out of here? And I'm not knocking rural Iowa. I love rural Iowa, right? I'm, I'm all in. I live in the country. But we, I remember us having those conversations. What, what, what comes out of here? You, you don't even got a stoplight. The reputation of Nazareth would have been worse than any run downtown in rural America. We are meant to think there's no way the Son of God could come from Nazareth. Well, maybe the Son of God coming from a no-name town is the point that God is making through the prophets. Jesus goes to the backwoods to save people from the backwoods. He comes from a lowly place to save some in their low place. Jesus did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. Matthew 5 Verse 32. The Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, says this, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by all people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. We get a sense that the Savior of the world was not going to be from the great city of Jerusalem or through the royal city of Bethlehem. Born there, but didn't live there. But he comes from the place you least expect. A lowly savior who ends up being a mighty and triumphant king comes from a lowly town. So Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth, all these locations are important. Each plays a role in telling us the significance of Jesus But Egypt ends up being the theological door that opens up to Bethlehem and then swings the other way to Nazareth. All the travel in which Joseph led his family so you, Christian, could be redeemed by the Son of God. The sovereign hand of God holds all of history together. So how can you apply today's sermon? Right? Here are a couple thoughts before I end. First, you can have a faith-infused confidence that what is written in Scripture is accurate and a historical description of what God has done. When you see things woven together like a beautiful tapestry, you're meant to step back and be like, oh, that is awesome. That is beautiful. I couldn't even do that if I tried. I couldn't write that kind of story. So be in awe of that. Be in awe of the star, the manger scene, the shepherds, and the wise men. It's all true. It's all true. All of it. So when you sing the songs that incorporate the shepherds, the wise men, the star, rejoice. Right? Rejoice. Second, if you're a Christian, you can be at peace during Advent. Know that God condescended to earth to be Emmanuel and to redeem you to himself for your good and for his glory. For his glory. God's grace shines off of you and through you and glorifies God. He came, and the details testify to the fulfillment of God's promise. As I continue to say, connect the promises of the incarnation of Jesus Christ with his crucifixion, with his resurrection, with his ascension, and with his second coming. Make those connection points this Advent season. And finally, if there are three words... I want, to re- want you to remember from today that I think help connect this, this entire story together. It's out 
of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. These three words from the Old Testament are repeated in Matthew. Tell us a son came out of Egypt to redeem a people from slavery. And you, Christian, are now set free. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.